We are introducing a new series today, the exegetical exposition of the epistle to the Colossians. You may ask, why the book of Colossians? Well, in a new work, I like to begin with the book of Ephesians. But some of you were with us in our study of that epistle on Sunday evenings before we began the Sunday morning service. And while we didn't finish that study, I thought it might be too repetitious to begin that again. Colossians is what I call an abridged version of the book of Ephesians. Because like Ephesians, the book of Colossians introduces the major doctrines of the church age, and it's a good place to start when we establish a new work. I introduced the study of the epistle. I'm going to go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, which introduces the purpose of the letter, and of course the purpose of our study here. It's in chapter 2 that the writer, the Apostle Paul, identifies his primary reason for writing the letter, and he sets the tone for the study. And so Colossians 2.8 will be our series text as we go throughout this study. It reads this way, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The word order in the original language text is different than the English. Now remember the Koine Greek in which the New Testament was originally written did not have punctuation. The language was so exact it didn't require it. Word order was one of the means of punctuating. So the English reader struggles some when he reads it in the green text, in the Greek text with his English set mind. In the King James Version, we're following in our study, this phrase in our text says, Beware lest any man spoil you. The Greek order says, Beware lest any man therefore shall be the one spoiling you. So bear with me, and we'll attempt to clarify what's going on in our text. It begins with the word beware. This is a second person plural, present active imperative from the verb blepa, which is in the indicative mood, and it means to see, but in the imperative mood, it means to look out. Here we have the imperative aspect. It's an ingressive present tense that indicates what should begin and then continue. The active voice indicates that the believer produces the action described by the verb. The imperative mood is a command to start doing something that we're not doing now. The use of the second person plural indicates that this is addressed to all the believers. Beware, lest any man. This is a nominative subject from the masculine gender singular indefinite pronoun tis. That's tis without an accent, and it means anyone. Here it has the negative adverb may, which means no, not, none. It used together then, it means not one. The use of the masculine noun identifies one who initiates the action. Continuously look out for one 
who will initiate the action described in the text, is what Paul is saying. Beware lest any man you. This is the accusative case, direct object, from the second person plural personal pronoun su, which means you all, and in the context it refers to believers who are positive to doctrine and are growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to continue to learn doctrine. This is an admonition to every believer, a warning that there is someone who is coming to lead you astray. The word you is out of order here to place an emphatic emphasis on the warning you. And then the text says there shall be one. This is a third person singular future active indicative from the verb I me, which means to exist or to be. This future tense is used as a statement of a fact which can be expected under the present conditions. Here it's to be expected that there will be false teachers attempting to distract believers in every generation from the true doctrines of the church. The middle voice is used with the negative to indicate no believer positive to doctrine should ever participate in this action of being distracted into false doctrine. The indicative mood is the mood of reality. It identifies a dogmatic statement of fact. This verb is again in the middle voice, indicating participation on the part of the subject and the subject being affected by the result. It's important here to remember from our previous study that Christ redeemed us in such a way that we can never again, against our will, be made a slave. Their pied pipers of heresy cannot affect us apart from our free will. They can only deceive a willing participant. The middle voice stresses that. Spoil you. This is a nominative masculine singular present active participle from the verb soon lago geo and means to carry off as a booty or as a captive. In other words, to take captive. It's used figuratively in our verse for carrying some away, someone away from the truth into the slavery of false doctrine. The definite article, ha, is used for specificity. The one taking you. The present tense indicates it's a continuous danger. The middle voice indicates there's participation on the part of the false teacher and on the part of the believer who cooperates with that. The fact that it is a participle indicates this is a biblical principle. So the expanded translation of that first phrase should read this way. Start continuously being on the lookout that there not be anyone with whom you participate in become in your becoming a captive. And then Paul identifies some of the methodology through philosophy. The Greek word used here, philosophias, is the preposition dia 
plus the genitive ablative of source or means from the feminine singular article case used as a possessive pronoun, and then the noun philosophia, meaning through their own philosophy. Philosophia is, a trans, is transliterated into English by our English word philosophy. It's a compound of two Greek words, philo meaning lover, and sophia meaning wisdom, lovers of wisdom. The wisdom in reference by this word means the ability to understand how to relate information to one's circumstance or experience. In the context and the colloquial usage in the text, it's speaking of a system of human philosophical beliefs adopted as authoritative by a group or by some individual. It's an obsession with human viewpoint. I point out it's a feminine noun. And therefore, adoption of philosophical thought is a response on the part of the believer to the exposure of philosophical thought through a person's free will. Today, even in mainline evangelical churches, humanistic philosophical thought has replaced the Word of God. It usually begins with a paraphrased translation and then becomes an opinion projected as truth. And this, of course, was prophesied in Revelation concerning the Laodicean church period in which we presently live. Now, in the Laodicean church period, storytelling has replaced expository preaching. I personally sat in congregations where Irma Bombeck and Ann Landers were quoted more often than the Word of God. But some teachers are more subtle than that, and they pretend they're sermonizing to be what the Bible says. The product of embracing human philosophy starts with tolerance, then apathy, then acceptance, and then participatory practice. But human viewpoint is not all that we're warned about. Paul continues and vain deceit. Kai kinesa arates, he says. Is the, that's a connective conjunction, kai, which means an, plus the genitive ablative of source and means from the feminine singular adjective kanas, which means empty, without content, or without any basis, without truth, without power, without profit, without effect, foolish or senseless. And then the noun arate, which means deception. The use of the adjective identifies for us by characteristic that which is characterized as empty or senseless. The use of the feminine gender identifies the empty or sinless deception is due to the individual's response. They've rejected the purity of the Word of God and have come to respond to human viewpoint. I said orates, that's apates. You have no doubt heard that bank tellers were trained to recognize counterfeit money by being exposed to legitimate money consistently so that if there was a deviation, they would recognize it. An expanded translation of the phrase here says, 
through the means of their own philosophical thought and responsive empty deception. Paul continues, after the traditions of men. Kata kain paradus. Here we have the preposition kata plus the adverbial accusation or accusative of reference from the feminine singular article and the noun paradosis, meaning then, according to the norms and standards of long-standing traditions handed down from one generation to the other. The use of the adverb identifies the practice by characteristic. The use of the feminine gender emphasizes its response on their part. The accusative case establishes limits and boundaries. This is what they base their practice on instead of the word of God, traditions of men. Of men is ton anthropon in the Greek. It's a genitive ablative of source from the masculine plural article in the noun anthropos, meaning then from the source of men. The genitive ablative form indicates that man, not God, is the source of these traditions that have been handed down from generation to generation. The use of the masculine gender identifies that they are initiators of these traditions, and that initiation is on the part of man, not on the part of God. So that translation of that phrase should read, according to the norms and standards of long-standing traditions handed down from one generation to another from the source of men. Then Paul goes on to identify that source a bit further. After the rudiments of the world. Cosmo is the word world here, and it refers to the world order. Kata, ta, stoi, kea. The writer tells us through the use of the preposition kata that these traditions of men are according to the norms and standards of those men that are projecting it. We have the adverbial accusative of general reference from the neuter plural article and its noun stoi kaion, meaning the fundamental principles. And then we have the possessive genitive from the masculine singular article and noun cosmos, the world order, which means according to the norms and standards of the fundamental principles of the world order and not after Christ. Not after Christ is translated from kai u ka kata and Christu. It's this conjunction kai, which means and, plus the negative adverb, which means not, plus the preposition kata, plus the adverbial accusative form of the masculine singular noun, Christos, and together the phrase says, and not on the basis of the norms and standards of Christ. So that phrase says, according to the norms and standards of the fundamental principles of the world, and not on the basis of Christ. So verse 8, in an expanded translation from the Greek, should read this way. And this will be our theme 
throughout the series. Start constantly being on the lookout that there not be anyone with whom you participate in your becoming captive through the means of their own philosophical thought and responsive empty deception. According to the norms and standards of long-standing traditions handed down from one generation to another from the source of men. According to the norms and standards of the fundamental principles of this world system and not according to the norms and standards of Christ. We begin this study of this epistle to Colossians with this verse because it's here that Paul states his main purpose for writing the letter. He's compelled to warn the believers who have shown a very positive response to doctrine to warn them against false teachers and their heretical doctrines which they are pandering already in the first century. False doctrine is the greatest danger to the believer who has begun to learn doctrine and is starting to grow spiritually. A serious problem with many positive believers is they get carried away with how much they're learning and they're eager for new doctrines So sometimes they become a vacuum listening to anyone as long as they're teaching something new and exciting or just different from what they might have already learned. Beware. Paul describes the false teachers as though who you allow to take you captive through their false teaching. The battleground for the spiritual life is in the soul. Satan attacks the believer's soul through false doctrine. His objective is not necessarily to get us to reject doctrine, though he will if he can, but his primary objective is to get us to believe something that's false. If he can just get his foot in the door with a small bit of false doctrine, eventually he can get a little more false doctrine accepted And after a few years, we end up believing all kinds of weird things that have actually no scriptural basis. Paul identifies what he means by false teaching then in our text in two parts. First, false teaching is empty deception based on the tradition from men. In the context, as we'll see, this is a reference to the Mosaic Law. This is what the Judaizers did. They'd come into a city like Colossae and say, that's really great that you believed in Christ, but if you want to make sure you're saved and not lose your salvation, then you must keep the commandments of the Mosaic Law as a means of executing the Christian way of life. This, of course, was contradictive to the entire concept of the amazing grace of God. Secondly, Paul indicates false teaching is based on the fundamental principles of this world order. Now this is a common sense approach to Christianity. Christianity is not based, however, on common sense. Christianity is based on the Word of God. Common sense is based on human viewpoint, which may be either good or bad. Depending on our viewpoint, While Christianity is based on the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2.16. So the fundamental principles of the world, which does not understand the concept of grace, 
is very misleading. Christianity is based on the absolute divine truth which existed from eternity past and remains the same into the eternal future. The principles and character of God never change. The traditions of men is described for us in greater detail in Matthew 15.2 and in Mark chapter 7 verse 5 and following as well as uh, under the third verse especially of that gospel. It's referring to the doctrine, the Jewish doctrine of Korban. Jesus addressed it this way in Matthew 15. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother. And he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father and his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your traditions. Mark records it this way. Then came together unto the Pharisees certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots and brass and vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat bread with unwashen hands. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah the prophet prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let, let him die the die of death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or to his mother, it is korban, that is to say, it is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, 
making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such like things do you. This example which the Lord used to rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes for their corruption of Scripture through their man-made traditions was the practice of korban. In Jewish tradition, it used to declare something to be dedicated to God. Grown children would declare all their holdings and savings as korban to God, a gift to God. So they could use the money during their lifetime and then not provide financial support for their parents when their parents became old because it was everything they owned had been given to God. The money or the property was declared dedicated to God and they could live out of it, but they had no obligation to care for their parents. It was God's money and Upon their death, then, it belonged to the temple treasure. Anything that was left over, usually there wasn't much left over. The traditions of men cover a wide spectrum of beliefs, evaluations and insights and reflections and inventions and cultural objects, organizations, behavioral patterns, skills, habits, and verbal traditions. Uh, Their writings are full of it. The Jewish traditions were handed down from their leaders to the people, from fathers to sons, from older to younger, from one generation to the other. The Jews felt a loyalty to the covenant and to their cultural heritage that their fathers had handed down in their entirety. Institutions, behavior patterns, holy words had to be maintained as a consciously enforced living program for life. The rabbis made a distinction between written Torah and the oral Torah. That is, between the authoritative Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, and an orally transmitted authoritative tradition which interprets supplements and sometimes corrects or contradicts the written Torah. How fascinating that the Jews had gotten to that point in handling the Word of God when today our evangelical seminaries are saying, no, there is an oral tradition. It is to tell the stories of the Bible orally and then they can be modified to embrace the culture and the time in which you are ministering. The New Testament designates this unwritten tradition as the tradition of the elders. The phrases, the customs of our Father, identified in Acts 28.17 and Acts 6.14, Acts 15.1, Acts 21.21, Acts 26.3, and other passages, and then term like the law of our fathers in Acts 22.3, they came to have this same broad meaning of an oral interpretation instead of literally what God has declared. In contrast to the religious traditions of men, we have the true traditions of God as taught by the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now remember, before the completion of the canon of Scripture, men with specific spiritual gifts, such as the gift of knowledge or the gift of prophecy, were teaching the musterion, that is, the mystery doctrines of the church age that had yet to be written. Second Thessalonians 3, six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which you have received of us. The tradition of men are described in our text as false teaching and empty deception. Whenever we hear a preacher telling us to do something and he can't document that and back that up with Scripture, then it's false doctrine, a tradition of men, an empty deception. Reject it every time. The fundamental principles of the world are a part of Satan's strategy. Satan has a strategy to control the nations of the world. His strategy is based on conspiracy and deceit, which explains the basis of war. Satan does manipulate nations, according to Revelation 12.9, Revelation 12.23, Revelation 23 and verse 8. He is the author of all the world peace movements. Example of that will be during the first half of the tribulation. He will establish a a universal uh, peace, but then midway through the tribulation, it will be destroyed. Satan is the chief opponent of the laws of divine establishment, and he seeks to break down freedom, marriage, the family, and the sovereignty of any nation where establishment, evangelism, biblical Christianity might be functioning. Internationalism is satanic in any form, and uh, an example of that would be in the first United Nations building that was biblically identified as the Tower of Babel. And we know what God did there. Satan's policy is power politics, violence, tyranny, and change. Part of his function is to malign law and order. Are we not seeing that today? He's the father of religion and of liberalism. He's anti-military, pro-welfare state, pro-socialist, and against free enterprise. Certainly against marriage and the and the family, and a promoter of abortion. Religion is part of Satan's strategy. Religion is the creation of Satan's genius to counterfeit the plan of God. When we refer to religion, we identify religion as man seeking to use his own merits, his own works, to gain the approbation of God. Grace is counterpoint to that. Satan's counterfeits of the plan of God in religion include a counterfeit gospel identified in 2 Corinthians 4, 
counterfeit ministers identified in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, counterfeit doctrine identified in 2 Timothy 4.1, a counterfeit communion table in 1 Corinthians 10, counterfeit spirituality in Galatians 3, counterfeit righteousness, Matthew 19, 16 through 28. The Mosaic Law is distorted into self-righteousness, which rejects faith in Christ for a relationship with God and an appropriation of God's grace. This self-righteousness is based on morality. Satan has a program of self-righteousness, according to Matthew 23. He has a program of power and dynamics, miracles, healings, tongues, emotionalism, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. And he has a counterfeit system of gods, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. False teachers are a part of the strategy of Satan. They have a phony, hypocritical facade. They're do-gooders who love everyone, being all things to all men apart from any standards based on biblical doctrine, according to Matthew 7.15. And they attempt to stimulate your own ego, according to Romans 16, verse 18. They use human public relations systems and flirtation with the court and uh, in their attempt to attract believers. Galatians chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. They appeal to human ego and arrogance and pride to distract believers from the doctrine of amazing grace in 2 Corinthians 10.12. They use mutual admiration societies to get their ideas propagated everywhere. They promote idolatry as a part of Satan's communion table. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. The worship of the image of the Virgin Mary in our age is idolatry. They promote legalism as a system of spirituality, according to 1 Timothy 1. They possess a false spirit, according to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. They're inspirational, but they do not function by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a program of humanism and the power of positive thinking that dominates. The necessity for the epistle to the Colossians is the appearance and manifestation of false doctrine. False doctrine in the church in Paul's day, and certainly false doctrine manifold in the church today. Our ability to spot false doctrine is directly related to our understanding of true doctrine. It's been reported that in the training of bank tellers, as I mentioned earlier, they're placed in an environment that repeatedly exposes them to legitimate currency and their acquaintance with the legitimate enables them to quickly recognize the counterfeit. 
The biggest problem in the church today is a lack of familiarity with sound doctrine. So the believer is ill-equipped to recognize false doctrine. There are three necessities that we must remember as we deal with the Word of God and seek to understand it. Three necessities. What does the text say? Secondly, what is the context in which that is said? And thirdly, how do you harmonize that text with every other text in the Word of God? It's my endeavor in our study in this epistle that you become so familiar with the true doctrines of the Word of God that you will immediately spot the phony. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. God bless.